Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Many of the discussions regarding health equity reference funding changes for patients, as well as the behavioral changes that are required of those of us who are in patient, direct patient care delivery. One of the opportunities, though, to broaden the discussion is to consider structural changes. I guess payment reform could be considered a structural change, but when I mean structure in this instance, I mean actual physical structures. And one of the modes, one of the structural changes and one of the structural aspects of addressing health inequity has to do with federally qualified health centers. This episode's guest is an expert in that particular arena and will absolutely be benefited by his knowledge, understanding, and application of the role of FQHCs in eliminating health disparities. But we also get to hear a fantastic journey from the continent of Africa to the shores of the United States. We get a unique perspective on the view of health equity from a more international lens. Uh, And we get to hear about an individual whose commitment to uh, improving healthcare, not only here, but uh, throughout the world is incredibly important and a valuable lesson for all of us to learn. So welcome to another episode of Crossing the Chasm. Okay, well, welcome back to Crossing the Chasm. And for this episode, we are joined by Salise Dow. I'm so happy that he is here. He is the Chief Operating Officer for uh, Uvo Health, uh, which is, to me, a very interesting organization because what it's doing is really helping federally uh, qualified health centers and other community health centers um, in terms of their value-based care proposition. And Many of you listeners are going to go, what does that have to do with health equity? And what does that have to do with diversity, (laughs) equity, inclusion? And I guarantee you our guest is going to be able to uh, help educate, um, but also um, note how important uh, these entities are and his entity is in helping to drive this. Uh, Salise is a graduate of Drake University in uh, International Business Administration with a minor in economics. So if we start asking him math questions, I'm immediately going to shy uh, away. He also has a master's of science in healthcare administration from the University of Maryland. Welcome, Salise. So happy that you're here to join us. Thank you, uh, Greg, for having me uh, on your podcast. Uh, it is a it's a timely forum that allows for a discussion like this to thrive. So looking forward to having an open conversation with you about my background. Absolutely. So let's just start right there. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, I gave some of your uh, accolades, including being a a person on the move in modern healthcare and all sorts of other things. But uh, tell us about uh, a little bit more about who you are and how you ended up uh, doing what you're doing. Well, again, once again, thank you for having me. Uh, My story really begins um, uh, in a coast of West Africa in Ghana. Uh, you and I have a lot of uh, synergies in terms of our background. We're both immigrants. Uh, and so, you know, what, where my story began is, you know, like you, Greg, I'm an, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in the, in the coastal country of Ghana, West Africa. It's about 33 million souls uh, bordered by the great Atlantic Ocean. 
uh, that beat against the dramatic waves of the coast. And oftentimes it echoes the colonial era incidents that went on in West Africa, right? And so uh, from the very beginning of my upbringing, I was acutely aware of the importance of racial inequity and diversity and inclusion and what it has done to the continent of Africa. Uh, in a country that is rich in history and resource and traditions, uh, the day, you know, the day provides comfort for those on the shores of, West, of the West to come back and, 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 and who wish to journey back and return to discover their truth. Like you, Greg, my parents were clinicians as well. My dad and OB, my mom a nurse. And so that quickly instilled into me the importance of health equity, providing healthcare to low and uh, middle income countries. That was what they did. Several milestones shaped my early perception of diversity and inclusion uh, and, and, and the influence it has on the equity within the global healthcare arena. I was young, so I didn't really understand the complexities as I do today, but fundamentally, you know, I was clearly aware of the regional inequities, the access and poverty that thrived my country as well as the region as a whole. And you see my father uh, in search of greener pastures and air quotes, decided he wanted to go offshore to look for work. And so he partnered with uh, non-governmental agencies. Uh, one of them was Save the Children Fund. And what Save the Children Fund does, it, it assigns physicians to real communities that need help, right? The poor, the needy communities. And so he sort of traversed many areas of the globe and the continent itself um, as an OB, trying to mitigate the abysmal infant mortality rate that was, was plaguing that, those nations. And so from early onset, I had the chance to experience that. And through those experiences as a boy, I was exposed to those challenges. My brother and I quickly you know, picked up on the non-exotic aspects of being a primary care physician. My dad never forced us to become physicians, but we picked up on the fact that it's hard work and it's difficult work. And if you want to do it in a meaningful way, that's what it takes. You know, during those years, uh, which is the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that's when we had the scourge of HIV also. So we saw that up front and, and really experienced that in a, in a granular level. And so that was sort of scene one, my exposure to, uh, to the career in healthcare and the career in diversity, inclusion, and, and cultural awareness. Scene two was when I flew over to the United States. So think of me as a young man, uh, you know, uh, and no surprise to you, uh, Greg, uh, you know, my parents didn't encourage me to go into medicine. In fact, the idea was go across to the Western shore and go and, and work in Wall Street. And so flew in into on a one cold morning into Des Moines, Iowa, uh, Midwestern city, came into great, uh, uh, you know, Drake University and was determined at that point to succeed in international business and go into Wall Street. However, once again, the calling came, diversity, equity, inclusion came calling because at the forefront of Drake's uh, initiative was to recruit more international students to build cultural awareness within the small uh, Midwestern town. And when I arrived, I was made the international student president. So I was able to build infrastructures that would support cultural awareness through sharing our food, our language, our clothing to bring people into the fold. And what you know, you, I discovered during that journey is that sometimes you have to showcase who you are to begin having those conversations about how actually uh, not so different we are, you know, and that's what I, I, I set out to do. So I was wearing things like batik prints on campus. I was carrying my talking drum on campus. It would generate conversations. People would stop me in the hallways to class and we, we would talk through that. 
and I was able to generate interest and curiosity in what we do. And, and, and together, we were able to really define it during that era, uh, uh, you know, the culture awareness within the Des Moines uh, Midwestern uh, community. So that was part two of my experience. Part three was my tertiary education, and that's an interesting one. So then came the, the third act. Fast forward to 2001, one sunny morning in September, the Twin Towers in New York came down, right? And I found myself aligning back to healthcare as a career option. So the idea of uh, going into Wall Street, the idea of having this exotic work in Wall Street and finance all went out of the door. And, and why? Well, once the Twin Towers came down, the life of an immigrant changed in a dramatic way, mm. right? And, and Wall Street was no longer visible. Recession surfaced. There were limitations to the ability of said immigrants to secure appropriate documentation to viably work in the country. You know, America was at war and inclusivity was out the door because it's you versus us. We've got to protect our borders. You know, and uh, honestly, you know, um, you know, to, to be more direct, you know, I couldn't find in that era the appropriate visa to be able to work in the country. And so I did the most uh, important next step, which is enroll in my graduate program. And so it all came full circle. You know, I was familiar with the healthcare environment. It had come calling again. It was recession proof and I embraced it. You know, the world in its, in its infinite wisdom had conspired to push me here. I was ready to help it, it make it a better place and carve out a career in healthcare. What then turned out to be two decades of building infrastructures and supporting systems to drive both appropriate reduction in the waste in healthcare arena whilst improving quality health outcomes. I spent the last 20 years, you know, in California, Texas, Illinois, now New York and Ohio, partnering with physicians, health plans, health systems, navigating value-based care, you know, and, and from, you know, the well cares to the elevances to the Texan plus, that's what I've spent my career doing in 20 years. So, you know, quite a long journey, but along the way I can see in this three-part discussion, that's how all the dots connected when I look back. It's fantastic that you state that. And you're right, there is a clear thread throughout all of it in terms of not only where you saw yourself, even not as a clinician, but um, you know, always resurfacing back into how you are best going to be able to, to aid those who are, are poor and underserved. Um, well, you, you knock out my second question, which is always why DEI is important to you, because you've already elucidated everybody about how it's layered throughout your life. So why don't you take us into, you may, you had a couple of things that I really wanted to dig into, which are, what is value-based care um, and how do you define it? Because I, I always find it interesting that everybody's got a slightly varied answer in terms of what it is. And what do you think it means with respect to the, the conversation, particularly around health equity? Well, I think uh, that's a great point that everyone who is ingesting or being a participant in value-based care looks at it differently, just depending whether you're a patient or a physician, a payer or an MSO. I define value-based care as you know the shift away from fee-for-service, which is a churn of bringing patients in through the door to just provide services for the sake of you know generating income. Value-based care is more targeted at providing quality care at the right time for the right individual in the right place. And when you do that, you're able to then improve health outcomes, engage the patient in their care, bring them to the forefront and have them become a participant in their care. 
Now, what comes out as, as a result is that it drives down, and you and I know this, that the total cost of care in this country is, a, is, is astronomical. We spend about 30% of our GDP in the healthcare industry. You and I also know that we as a nation, especially in the post-pandemic era, are aware of the challenges that plague health inequities in our society. And so value-based care is designed by nature to target those areas and provide the resources and infrastructure to support patients and physicians thrive in the right environment. Now, how does that, um, how does that engage in, in health equity? Well, depends on the constituent you're thinking about. If you think about payers, for example, and I spent quite a bit of my career in the payer world, the ability to ingest and our access to data allows us to define and, and know what is happening within our communities because you have the data to understand where the needs are. And oftentimes, Greg, it is localized. It is very localized. It is what that community needs, whether it's a supporting postpartum depression, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's closing quality gaps, having access to that data supports the value-based care initiative because you're being proactive and preventing those incidents before they occur, and you're targeting the, push, the, the, the populations that are most vulnerable. Right. If you think about management service organizations, sort of the conduit that support physicians in thriving in value-based care, it is being able to partner with physicians and build trust, being able to partner with patients and build trust. Because at the end of the day, it is trust that is going to bring the community together. It is tr trust that is going to build a relationship between a primary care physician and their patient so that that patient throughout the 12 months can engage in their care uh, and be able to be an active listener and participant in, 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 in their care. And, and it is not just about the tools. It's not just about the resources. It's about being active in that community and, and being able to ingest and deploy the resources that supports that unique community's needs. So from my standpoint, that is value-based, bringing value to the constituents and communities, whether it's physicians, patients, hospital systems, outpatient uh, facilities, all of those coming together to provide service at the right time, the right place for the right cause. That's what, to me, that is. Uh, it's a beautiful definition and highlights, again, the, the, part, the parts that I always extract from it, um, particularly the things that, it, as a physician, you, you want to value, right? Patients participating in their care, mm -hmm. direct involvement in their communities, Right, you know, and exactly what you said, right care, right place, right time, and not focused on the churn, which I know in my own experience, patients are like, well, why am I doing this? And what, what's the reason for for all of this? And are you just doing this to charge me some extra stuff or, you know, or are you actually trying to do something for me? Um, I At the end of the day, I, I know um, I would simplify it for patients. I was like, I can do plenty of stuff. Uh, to you. I would like to do stuff for you. And sometimes the stuff for you doesn't have anything to do with a hospital. Uh, it has to do with your home. It has to do with your community. Uh, it has to do with, um, you know, uh, we, we spend an exhaustive amount of time dis discussing the social determinants of your health. Um, mm -hmm. that that have very little to, you know, very little to, to do with what most people equate to their health. So, no, that's a, that's a great definition. Now, I wanted to make sure that we got through that because the next step is getting into the work that you're doing, which is also getting people under to understand, uh, because a lot of your work is with federally qualified health centers. 
which I think most people understand, but want to, again, make sure that we have a clear definition. So what's an FQHC and where does it, in your eyes, fit into our health system um, in terms of, again, addressing health inequities and value-based care? Because I don't think most people consider FQHCs <laughs> in any value-based care initiatives. Well, that's true. I mean, I will say it's fairly noble. And the reason why FQHCs are not the forefront, Greg, is because in the, in, the, in the pandemic era, we saw the impact of COVID on marginalized populations. Oh, yeah. Um, the data was available uh, that the, 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 the BIPOC group, Black, Brown, Indigenous individuals were most hard hit by the, by the pandemic. And so that really began the discussion about diversity, equity, health equality. That also brought up the discussions about which are the, the, the constituents or players within our communities that, that really can help us solve this issue of inequity. And FQACs or community health centers play a unique role in that. So for your audience and for, for others listening in, community health centers are nonprofit organizations, right? They are patient-governed organizations that provide high quality, comprehensive primary care to Americans within medically underserved communities and they serve all patients irrespective of their income or insurance needs. Now, how did they start? Right in the early 1960s, the administration of President Lyndon Johnson revealed a Special Economic Opportunity Act, which promised an open neighborhood health centers for underprivileged people. In fact, these centers were one of the main points of Johnson's war on poverty. And then in 1975, federal authorities passed a special community health center program, which was authorized under Section 330 of the Public Health Service Act. This program included a few points that help public, the public understand the basic purpose of these centers and this clarify and clarified the help that the centers could bring to the community. So, so community health centers are in, as you know, as I described, are servicing the marginalized population, the poor, the needy, they are in strategically placed areas supported by the federal government. And we have about 1,400 of them right now within the United States. And as of 2021, which was at some point part of our, our COVID era, they, they serviced about 30 million individuals. So if you think about the amount of individuals that are getting their care from community health centers, that is astronomical and that is really impactful. Similarly, one of the things we saw during the COVID era, which highlights how they were instrumental from a health equity standpoint is that Community health centers really were the linchpin of deploying the COVID vaccine to these population groups. We may not have ever gotten to herd immunity if they hadn't done this, right? If they hadn't built already been those communities of marginalized and poor community, the vaccine wasn't just for the rich. The vaccine wasn't for those that lived up on Wall Street. It's for everyone in our communities, right? And so who were the right instruments and agencies to attract and encourage through the trust you and I talked about, bringing these uh, individuals that have lost trust with their communities, they're marginalized, there's racial challenges, there is stressors. If you recall, even during the COVID era, we had the George Floyd incident. Right. That put a ton of pressure, not just on our public infrastructure, but our health infrastructure, because that's where people are getting their, you know, their message and their commitment to the infrastructures that have been set up to drive appropriately appropriate agencies like health equity or healthcare, or in this other framework, um, uh, security and policing system, 
or another framework are, are governmental agencies. Health centers did that. About 65% of, of uh, and the underserved population got their vaccines through the health centers. And I would posit to say that they were agencies in helping us get to um, get to herd immunity, which today is what has allowed us to get back out of our houses and go back out there and, and be able to socialize. You know, I was, you know, I was a caregiver during that period for my, my, my wife's parents and we were cooped up at home, couldn't go anywhere. Right. Impactful time. The other, the other area that community health centers are able to drive is because they are localized in the communities and because they build trust, they understand not just the chronic needs of their communities and the individuals there, but also their social needs. Community health centers have agencies and partnership with the, with the community, community, as you call them, community-based organizations that support them deploy the social needs that their, their patients uh, uh, want. So when you think about transportation, childcare, food desert, clothing, housing, all of these things are impactful to the marginalized uh, population they, they support. And all of these are derivatives within health equity. In order for individuals to be able to, in order for us to be able to give everyone the right opportunity to ingest healthcare in the right manner and have the level playing field to be an intentional agency in their care, we have to support health equity. And how do we do that? My bet that I made, Greg, a number of years ago when I launched my first Medicaid uh, value-based care, it, it, right here in North Texas was that I value the impact of disease management and managing chronic conditions. You're a physician, so you know that. But for certain specific population sets, that's an afterthought. It isn't what they're thinking about, taking the blood pressure medication or right. taking the A1Cs. That's not what you're thinking about. They're thinking about where's my next meal coming from? Right. Am I going to sleep? And so the bet that I made here in North Texas was that with a payer partner was that if we designed a playbook and an infrastructures that allowed us to support our this uh, specific uh, Medicaid population in, in solving their social needs, the social what we've, you know, in the last couple of years has, has become prolific, the social determinants of health. If we, if we supported that, then we are going to be able to give them the headroom and the space to not pivot to their care. So we went around partnering with um, our community-based organization here in, in, in North Texas, about 30 of them. We created steering committees and forums. We deployed a technology platform called Anbertha to give us the ability to track a referral for social needs from institution to completion. And this is what we saw. By addressing these inequities, and, and providing what we deem to be a level playing field for people now to ingest their care, we're able to drive quality outcomes up 45%. And we're I'm sorry, to, say that one more time. I want to <laughs> make sure we get that. <laughs> we're able to drive our quality outcomes by 45%. So if you think about care gaps and preventive care and getting the population to ingest that, 45% in quality outcomes and reduce total cost of care by 15%. Say that one more time for me. <laughs> so improving quality outcomes by 45%, reducing total cost of care by 15%. And that was an intentional playbook solving social determinants of health issues. It is an important aspect of what community health centers do. And that's why they're so vital 
to attempting to level the playing field. So and that's one aspect. The other aspect that my current organization, UVO, does, besides all of this, is that in the race to value, and I'm not sure whether you listen to for Eric Weaver's podcast, and I was going to mention that to you at the end, which other podcasts are important out there, Eric Weaver and I uh, have a long history together and have worked in the same environment. But in the race to value, community health centers have been left behind. It is not their fault. They have been focused on working with resources they have to support marginalized underserved communities. Mm-hmm. And so our work is how do we turn that around? How do we assist them by the technology solutions, by the human capital individuals that understand the levers of population health and value-based care? But more importantly, how do we, we how do we become the front end agency that allows them to ingest these advanced payment models that are coming from the payers to support value-based care? Because community health centers can't do that themselves. No. So that's where a company like Yuvo comes in, which is we've got the talent, the know-how, the leadership, we've got the relationships. You know, it's a true BIPOC team. So the founders are a true BIPOC team. In fact, they or and their family members experienced their healthcare through community health centers. So they know exactly what they're talking about and what the needs are. And so Yuvo was built under that infrastructure to be uniquely supportive of community health centers to ingest the appropriate models that will help them thrive and succeed in value-based care. Oh, that's fabulous because this, you, you did so much there um, that I'm, I'm borderline giddy. First off, it's reinforcing what I think most people avoid in these conversations, which is the business, reinforcing the business case. Mm-hmm. Your comment on quality outcomes, clinical mm-hmm. outcomes, improving total cost of care reduction is the ultimate goal of what, you know, what everybody is discussing in healthcare in terms of the key components of the quadruple aim reinforced in terms of the work that you're doing. And then as importantly, and it's a clear reason why I asked you to come on is you are now, how are we part of the solution in making sure that those tools are getting in the hands of not only individuals, but institutions Mm -hmm. that are attempting to focus on eliminating those poor outcomes that ultimately improve our entire health system in, in the entire health of our population. It's there are actual solutions out there. We don't have to admire the problem anymore. We can dig in and, and figure out what specifically we can do to, to be part of the solution. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I think the solutions are out there, you know, like you, you know, you've been in, in value-based environment for four years. You and I worked on several things a while back ago uh, in, in some of your journey. The, the tools are there. It's about how do you deploy it in a meaningful way, in a trusting way to bring these health institutions, community health centers along on this journey, because it is not a cookie cutter business, right? It is really designing those solutions specific to the area, the geography, the journey that they're on so that they can, they can come along on that. And that, and the solution, I mean, the, 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 the idea is that if we can support them in a meaningful way, if we can build trust, if we can augment what they're already doing, because there's evidence that they've done phenomenal. You know, when we had an existential threat in this nation, community health centers delivered for us, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, and, and you're right, you never heard or read about it. You never heard about it and read about it. I mean, my journey 
coming here was because, you know, four years ago, I launched the first value-based uh, uh, managed Medicaid product in my previous company. And so in, in working through those lens, and, and you know, we have different constituents of, of, of uh, medical service agencies. We've got independent physicians, large groups, and we've got health institutions, health systems, and FQACs. To be honest with you, I was in that bucket where FQACs were not on my radar. But as I began to work in this infrastructure, the light bulb went off. The agencies, the, 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 the partners, the institutions that are seven majority of the underserved populations are community health centers. And so it behooves us to really then begin to design our solutions to support them. Because when they do well, our communities are healthy, cost of care goes down, quality outcomes goes up. And, and when they deploy all their solutions, not just on the clinical, clinical side, but on the solution side, right. then you are driving at the heart of what we're discussing about, which is health equity. Yeah, no, it's, it's completely true. Completely true. Uh, I'm I'm gonna pause for the moment because I it, it was totally uh, immersed in that portion of the conversation. But take a breather because you've been doing sharing such valuable information, and um, open it up. What questions do you have? This is our Ask Greg uh, portion of the podcast, <laughs> and we'll see if we'll see if this is another stumper for me. <laughs> No, it, it wouldn't be. And thank you for, for giving that opportunity to ask questions. I mean, I think from a clinical standpoint, you know, what I've talked about for the last 30 minutes has been about the uh, infrastructures that we can build. I'm not a clinician, but what are the tools and solutions and infrastructures that we can build across MSOs, payers, community health centers to drive quality outcomes and health equity within our, within our, within our, our nation, certainly within our community. But there's a clinical aspect to health equity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this is where you live, which is that, you know, part of the anecdotes and uh, thought leadership and uh, press release that have come out is that there are, you know, over many generations, uh, uh, Greg, there have been uh, care pathways that have been designed with racial biases. Yep. And my question to you is that, and I don't have to name them because you know them better than I do. Uh, my question to you is that on this journey, how does number one, a country, how does a, a, a world that I've lived in this area for so long begin to pedal back and solve some of those issues? Because they're not just about, you know, supporting a value-based initiative, partnering with a peer and deploying solutions. It's really about the, the, and you know this better, the doctrine of the care that you're delivering right. has to change. What are your thoughts uh, 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 under those circumstances? Well, yeah, and that's uh, probably, it's not even a podcast episode. It's probably a podcast topic <laughs> into itself. I, I think the same way that you uh, highlighted that the, the data exists and, you know, the, the, the frustrating aspect from the clinical standpoint is most of these issues have are known, have been known, have been reported in the literature for decades. I think that the the inertia that we've had on the clinical side is that well, we've done things and they they seem to work okay. So why change? I think that the why change is 
you know, we are now in an era where the why change is being challenged, status quo is being challenged on a pretty consistent basis, and the level of transparency, you mentioned data, and and, uh, and now more people than ever sort of have access to data because of the, the advent and evolution of electronic health records, as well as other big data, um, and it is really now re-evaluating what the status quo has been to ensure that we are a eliminating the waste that you had uh, that you had highlighted right we do test unnecessarily you know various organizations adhere to the choose wisely campaigns which are like they're just a whole bunch of stuff we do in healthcare that doesn't make any sense and now there are more individuals in uh, areas of influence there are more you know there are more hospitals having chief medical officers there are well slowly but surely more chief medical officers and other leaders of medical staffs of color um, and of the BIPOC community that are really sitting there and going, well, wait a second, what, like, what, what have we been doing here for the last 20, 30, 40 years? And that is really what, you know, what, whenever I am having the conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, but particularly the diversity and inclusion uh, component, it is really, hey, there've got to be leaders in here that are saying, I'm sorry, we're bringing in this perspective. And by the way, if you haven't been, uh, you know, if you haven't known about these studies and these data, now we have to change who we are as a health system. We have to change our approach as clinicians in order to make sure that these changes, you know, these historical um, uh and, and sort of structurally based inequities um, get removed from health systems. And it's slow um, because, uh, you know, I, I know I get repeatedly frustrated about the fact that, you know, people have chest pain, um, it, you know, chest pain evaluations from 30 years ago. And there are, whether you're look, evaluating women in healthcare and how, uh, you know, a chest pain is going to be evaluated slightly differently because you're asking subtly different questions. The same as, uh, you know, orthopedic pathways and how they are, haven't necessarily treated pain for black patients the, the way that it been historically. Everybody's got to, has to rethink what they're doing and you have to have people in place and bringing these uh, this level of attention and then utilizing the data to really sit down and analyze, you know, we do have differentiated outcomes and it's not a good thing. And now what are we going to do to be able to address that? And I, longer answer, we, we went through our own exercises and organization and evaluating our data. And um, I, I know that I shook my head in disappointment of the fact that we had, um, you know, uh, we, we had demonstrated health inequities within our organization, yeah. um, but the good news was that we finally looked, we were willing to acknowledge that, and then we were able to implement changes um, that, that have started resulting in eliminating those disparities. And that's the only way that you're going to ultimately get to the point of clinically being able to be involved to, to, to um, you know, address this. So longer answer than I intended, no. but I, I, I was just sitting there going, Man, it's it's a multi-layered question. Yeah. It, it is, it is, and I think yeah. it's important. And every now and then, in in you know my sidebars with my clinician friends, and you know they're asking similar questions about the infrastructures that we can build as operators to support Valley Basic and the movement in our in our national healthcare ecosystem. 
that's the question that comes up. There are these clinical pathways that are also infused with those right. racial biases, and those aren't easy to fix, like some of the things that I'm doing on, on, on my side. Right. So, so definitely thank you for the response. I would like to mention, I know as we, we get closer to the end of our session, that an area that is really heavily important to me, Greg, is that besides the physician, physician facing, patient facing engagement and some of the instruments and levers that I've discussed with you today, there's another group that I really care dearly about, which are the individuals that actually work within the healthcare system. Yeah. And their needs, right? Um, that's an area as a leader that is important to me. And so as part of my journey, one of the things that I've tried to do, because I think when those individuals are taken care of, they're really leaning into what we and I know is a very difficult task. Right. You know, one of the things that resonates recently I've been talking to my dad about is that back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he was trying to support and mitigate infant mortality rate and maternity uh, mortality rates. And Greg, today we're still doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's he and I will will sit and talk about it and and it's like what happened why I over all these years how we made strides but but I bring it back to the fact that I think it's important that the agents that support and work in the street are supported in diversity equity inclusion as well so I want to share with your audiences throughout my career some of the things I mean that I think folks should consider as they build a diversity equity and inclusion environment it's not an easy task. You know, I've done it several times, uh, but but these are my key tenets, which is, you know, it's important to make DEI visible, right? You're making it visible through your podcast. Within a company, within an institution, organization, it's important to share your commitment to your employees. It's important to be, um, to own the mistakes and make it visible. It is important to invite a conversation. We're doing so today, you and I, but it's important to bring folks together, whether it's a committee, whether it's a BRG, business resource group, you have to bring folks together to talk about this in order to move the agenda forward. It is important to review data as well. We do employee surveys all the time. Right. The data exists. If you, if, you, if you read through it, you'll find where the gaps are that you can begin to try to solve. It's important to build partnerships, Greg, you know this. I mean, what we, this is a very uncomfortable area that brings out a lot of sensitivity because it is it, it requires individuals to be vulnerable and share their real person right. instances and so you know you have to build partnerships right and and because we're not going to burn the ocean over i always encourage folks to start small like you you have to start in a in a meaningful right. way and begin to grow as your as you as you get more infrastructure and structure and build out your processes uh, it is also important to design a roadmap, which is I'm starting today, you know, when, when I did this more recently uh, in my journey, you know, we had a roadmap of what are the five things we wanted to accomplish in, in 2021. If we didn't get there, we'll do three and then move on to the next. You've got to have incremental wins and incremental right. successes. And, and then most important, ask for help. I mean, the conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, whether on the clinical side and the value-based side or just within the uh, organization for structure is it's uh it is it is not easy to accomplish it is not easy to maintain and, and i say this because if you go on linkedin and you look at all the write-ups from thought leaders it's a discussion point but are we just talking about it right 
or are we actually doing it? Right. Because it's easy to talk about it, but it's much more difficult to really engage in it. And so it's important that we give ourselves time, we give ourselves grace, we ask for help, uh, and we solicit feedback in order to get this done. So I wanted to share that because that's the framework by which I've led my career, which is, is, the, is the, the, the work in healthcare. But we have to recognize that the people that deliver those services also need the level of support within that environment. No, thank you so much for that framework. And I uh, couldn't agree with you more, particularly around the starting small, because I think everybody looks at this, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about health and equity, and we're like, it's 80 years documented history. What do you want me to overcome? I was like, one thing, do one, one thing. thing, do one thing well. And I guarantee, you know, we, everybody talks about that 1%. Like if we can just get one, if everybody gets 1% better, that collective is going to um, ultimately um, serve us all uh, better. Uh, before we get, we run out of time. I always make room for Jay uh, to jump in and ask questions. He, he has uh, remained stoic and steadfast in, in terms of it, but he always has good ones. So Jay, what do you have for yeah. our guest? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, so I've been thinking a lot, especially just talking about um, the community health centers. Yeah, I live in South LA, and I feel like that's a this definitely a place where they serve this community. And it became really clear to me, as you were saying, with with pushing the COVID vaccine to the community. Um, I can think really clearly where they partnered with like local cafes, and on Saturday mm -hmm. were driving um, opportunities for vaccination. But for me, that was the first time I really saw in my neighborhood. I've lived here three years that the community centers had a had a presence. And so yes. I guess I'm just wondering, thinking of listeners, um, you know, how do you, to, to like just be aware of what's out there? You know, maybe not necessarily they need the community center, but whether it's your neighbors or people they know and being able to encourage adoption. Because I think, you know, you might be doing great work, but if the people aren't going there to take advantage of it and to be served, then, you know, it, it doesn't drive the change that we're talking about, right? No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's what Yuvo has distinctively set itself up to do, which is bring the the, the discussion and the visibility of community health centers to the forefront. Yuvo isn't doing community health centers and some other thing. They're focused solely on community health centers because of, of the experiences you just described. And so you're right, it's about bringing it to the forefront, it's about delivering the solutions, it's about shoring them up. Because we think if we do that, think about the 30, now 33 million uh, members that they saw in, in 2021 and, and, and 2020, they could see more. Right? They can see more because they can have the resources to see more and build the workflows to be able to support more individuals. And so you've always committed to this work. Our, our leadership team, our, our CEO, Cesar, uh, uh, Cesar Herrera, I mean, this is what he lives and breathes every day. And it's a real amazing leader in, in shepherding us to what is a noble idea, to be honest with you. It is a noble idea. So we don't, we don't stay claim that we've, we've succeeded in doing that. We, 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 are, we are working through it. We've had our successes, but we're learning along the way as well. And so I guess to that and being like very practical, I guess the next part of that question would be like when I'm talking to, to my neighbor, 85 year old lady, great lady, Mrs. Davis, lived on the block, you know, 40, 50 years when, when she needs like healthcare access, if she doesn't, I don't know if she has insurance, doesn't, you know, how, how do I like learn or, or, or point her in that direction to be able to access these community centers? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, you know, and I don't know your community that well, but I would imagine that because you're helping her, you can go online, you can put in the, the, the zip code, uh, the, our website, if you say community health centers within a certain uh, geography, it will list them out to you, 
like you do with with other institutions you'll you'll map out the 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 distance for her to get there now this is the thing let's say she's unable to get there because you can drive her or she has no one to get her there the community health centers have access to the community-based organization partners that can provide transportation so that's the key right the key is that these institutions are in there just for delivering of the clinical needs but also the social needs i can't get there because i don't have transportation i can't get to you because i need childcare. i can't get to you because i've got these social uh, determinant challenges they have the resources or the connection to the resources to help her, her get there so i would say absolutely um uh you know begin to to look for your communities community health centers but more importantly once you call them up they will help her get there if she's unable to for any other various reasons awesome thank you so much i you know truth be told i feel like sometimes it just feels so daunting and then it's like like you said you know you okay now i found the center but there's all those challenges and i'm not equipped to do it and so to know yeah. that those resources are there and it's super exactly. accessible it's, it's, it's about connecting to those resources and they will connect to those resources on behalf of the patient because they want everyone in there. I mean, their charter is whether you have insurance or not, you can come in and be taken care of. And that's why they're so valuable to our communities and I'm, I'm excited to be working with them. Awesome. Awesome, thank you so much. Well, well, Salise, we are definitely at time. I uh, want to once again, thank you so much for your being here and uh, chatting with us uh, and uh, continued excellent work um, in everything that you're doing. Loved hearing your journey, uh, getting the details and, uh, and certainly value having you as part of the healthcare ecosystem and really helping to frame it. So thank you so much. And uh, well, actually, Greg, before, before we let him off the see, hook. Jay never lets me off the hook. <laughs> doesn't happen. All right, Jay. We do have a, qu a question to ask you. Um, well, two questions. One is, are there any other topics uh, related in healthcare DEI that you feel like would be a good place for us to discuss? And also, um, if there's any guests that you would recommend, and hopefully you'd be willing and able to make an introduction for us. Absolutely. So on all of those, yes, I, I, I you know, have a network of individuals that I think like you and, and Greg and myself uh, that are willing to come on board. So I'll make those introductions. And in terms of the of, of the topic, I think, look, this topic's so big, we haven't even fleshed it out yet. Right. So in the journey that Greg, you're on in this podcast, there's so much more that can be fleshed out. The question that you and I just engaged in briefly about the clinical side of you know uh, uh, care pathways that has an opportunity to uh, uh, for us to grow. And then really, you know, because I have this optics of the global lens. At some point, I would certainly like to explore what we're doing here and how it impacts what the globe is doing yes. beyond our shores. Because yes. to be honest with you, we are, we're, we're a nation of, a, of, of, of different you know, tapestry, melting pot. So we are getting folks coming into America with ideas of living, having a better life and better opportunity. And, and, and so the idea that we can set up systems here and it's just unique to, to America shouldn't be shouldn't be where we start because if we can support other areas, low to middle income countries, develop some of these initiatives as well, then I think it makes our whole world a better place. One of the lessons of COVID is that there are no borders. There are actually, what we see today, artificial borders. There are no borders. When a pandemic hits, it doesn't matter whether you're in Alaska or you're in Des Moines, they're all impacted at the same rate. And so I, as I, as I grew through my journey and my career, that's an, a lens, mostly because that's been my optics for a long right. time. 
I'm thinking through that lens as well. Well, it's it's an important one, and it, th even that one has multiple layers because you think in like, what does that mean for public policy in terms okay. of considering that, you know, that um, you know so much, and and you know, in terms of well, do certain people get access to treatment because is healthcare right? Well, not treating somebody may have implications for the population that is historically um, supposed to have access to those resources and that complicates everybody, everybody's thinking. So I love that. And thank you, Jay, for holding me accountable and making sure that I don't, I, I don't, I don't get away from that. Um, that, you know, we, you mentioned another podcast, which was race to value um, and, and Eric Weaver. And so we'll, we'll make sure to give that a shout out. Um, and if there are any other podcasts that we should be, you know, we should be listening to or our listeners should uh, check out more than happy to, to hear that as well. And, and we'll put it as part of the show notes. So Lise, we promise to get you out, out of here on time. We're going to do that. Appreciate you. Thank you so um, much. Thank you so much, you guys. This was wonderful, uh, and I've enjoyed talking to you. And and de definitely, if you all want to have me back, we can we can do that in 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 the future state, future day. Oh, see, he asked to come back. That's Jay. Put him down. He's signed up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely hold you to that. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.